welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have Mahama of Mayhem by Robert Leslie Bellum. Bellum was best known for his creation of Dan Turner, Hollywood detective, whose exploits explored the seamy underbelly of Tinseltown. Bellum's stories were known for their over-the-top dialogue and supercharged, hard-boiled style that bordered on parody. Bellum is said to have written 3,000 short stories during his 30-year career, Most of these appeared in the culture publications line of spicy books, such as Spicy Detective and Spicy Mystery, but he also wrote for several other magazines. Among Bellum's other creations were P.I. Nick Ransom, who appeared about a dozen stories, including this piece from the April 1948 issue of Thrilling Detective. The story is included in our recent release from Brick Pickle Media, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 4, now available in print and ebook formats. It features some of the best pulp stories from the pages of Thrilling Detective. It, along with the earlier volumes, can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore. You can get a discounted price bartering direct from our website. That link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Mahatma of Mayhem by Robert Leslie Bellum Chapter 1. Man with a Gun I was moving toward the Brown Derby for a snitter of scotch and a bite of supper when an object much firmer than a banana dug into my spine and a masculine voice behind me said huskily, Take it easy, brother, or I'll blast a cavity in you as big as the Holland Tunnel. For an instant, I thought it must be some dimwit's idea of a practical joke, for nobody but a schmo would poke a gat in your back on the corner of Highwood and Vine at 8 o'clock in the evening with a sidewalk full of witnesses. At least that was my first reaction, but it changed my mind when I caught the metallic click of a gun's hammer being cocked. Then I realized I was up against a bozo who meant business. I said, take it easy, he repeated, breathing the words down my neck and emphasizing them with another jab of his Roscoe. Unless you want your tripes ventilated. Since I didn't want to have my tribes ventilated on such an elegant California night, I just slowed my pace to an easy stroll and presently drew to a halt at the curb. Leaned against a convenient lamppost and assumed an air of casual disinterest. I wanted to turn around and confront the character with the cannon, but I suppressed the impulse. He sounded like a man with itchy trigger finger, and experiences taught me I'm far from bulletproof. Okay, New York, I said over my shoulder. I'm taking it easy, as requested. Now kindly tell me what this is all about. Where do you get that New York stuff? You don't know me. You ain't even copped to look at me yet. So what's with this New York routine? Elementary, pal. Elementary. For purposes of comparison, you mentioned the Holland Tunnel a moment ago. The Holland tum- Tunnel is strictly New York. Nobody but a native of Gotham would speak of it so glibly off the top of his mind. Therefore, you're a New Yorker. I didn't bother to add that his accent reeked of the Bronx. That would be giving away trade secrets. And after all, does Gimbal tell Macy? Clever, ain't you? Private dicks have to be clever to stay in business. And by a curious coincidence, I'm a private dick. I made my tone mild to lull him. Then I bunched my muscles and leaped straight up, grabbed at the lamppost and clasped it to my bosom the way a monkey climbs a coconut tree. Simultaneously, I lashed back with my brogans and had the satisfaction of feeling both heels slam into a flabby stomach. The impact was immediately rewarded by a moan and a sudden expulsion of breath, like the whoosh of air escaping from a punctured tire. Releasing my grip, I dropped back to the sidewalk and swung around face to face with the Gotham Gunsel. As faces go, he looked pretty painful. 
His thin lips were twisted in a sickening grimace. His muddy brown eyes were as dull as tarnished pennies, and he was doubled over like a case of poisoning. With his left hand, he was clutching at his damaged midsection while the nickel-plated rod in his right trooped for lonely and forgotten. I swooped for the weapon, got it, stowed it in my pocket. Then I straightened him out of his cramped crouch to support him with a counterfeit tenderness that was exclusively for the benefit of a few dozen assorted passers-by who had stopped the stare. One side, folks, I said pleasantly. My chum here is very sick. We're rehearsing a movie routine that backfired, so make way while I take him to first aid. That's one nice feature about Hollywood. You can get away with almost anything if you say it's for pictures. The crowd opened up and I nudged my English captain around the corner where my coupe was parked. I'm in with you, bub, I said grimly, before you get hurt. Already got hurt. Man, the way you can kick. I wedged myself under the steering wheel alongside him. I've doubled practically everything else, I said. In case you aren't aware of it, my name is Nick Ransom. Yeah, I know. I'm a snoop. I know that, too. And before I went to the private eye racket, I was a stuntman in the galloping snapshots. I ran a firm called Risks Incorporated, specialized in spurious thrills at 50 bucks per broken neck. That's in case you're wondering how they will shimmy up that lamppost and give your abdomen a helping of shoe leather. Go ahead, boast. I deserve it. But Mahatma warned me you was a tough baby to handle. Should have known better than get so close to you, but I was careless. Now I guess you'll be turning me over to the bulls, huh? Not quite yet, I said, and set fighter cigarette, blue smoke in his puss. First, we play a little game entitled Questions and Lumps. I ask you questions. If you don't see the correct answers, you get lumps. Do I make myself clear to you? Yeah. He shivered visibly, though the night was warm. Too clear. Good. Now, then, your name. He made a sour mouth. This will slay you. Reginald Percival Clancy. Now go ahead and laugh. Everybody else does. I was in no mood for jokes. Okay, Reginald, I said without cracking a smile. Next, we take up the matter of this Mahatma you mentioned. You say he warned you I'd be tough to handle. That indicates you're working for him and he hired you to pull the stick up on me, right? Not a stick up, a snatch. You know, a kidnap caper, sort of. I tried to pick you up when you left your apartment a while ago, but you drove off too fast and got away from me. So I tailed you in a taxi and caught up with you here. There was no real harm in it, though. That is, I mean... Whoa, 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 not so fast. Go back a little. Who is this Mahatma? What's his square moniker? Reginald Percival Clancy made a vague gesture. Mahatma Guru is what he calls himself. That's all I know. I only been working for him for a few days. Oh, come now. Mahatma is Indian for instructor, and Guru means almost the same thing. Mahatma Guru? That's like saying professor, teacher. Don't dish me that brand of double talk, Reggie. It'd only buy you bruises. Look, it ain't my double talk. It's his. The Mahatmas, I mean. I'm loving with you, gumshoe. He calls himself Mahatma Guru, and he reads horoscopes or something. Claims he can see the future. In my business, it pays to keep a line on all the phonies floating around, but Mahatma Guru I'd never heard of. He must be new out here, I said. Yeah, he just hit town this week and hired me to be his handyman. So tonight he tells me you want your brain to him. Oh, so. Well, that's just Andy. He'll certainly get his wish. When I get through with him, he'll see stars that aren't in a horoscope. What's the address? Reginald mumbled a number over in Van Ness near the Paramount lot, and I tickled my starter, fed my coupe gas. Nine minutes later, I dropped anchor near a bungalow with overhanging eaves and a wide, deep front porch, a relic of the good old days before architects brought modernism to the architecture of Southern California. It had probably been standing there for 20 or 30 years, and barring earthquakes and termites, it would stand for 20 or 30 more. It was a modest house, substantial but self-effacing, and it didn't look at all like a joint where murder had just been committed. 
Shoving Reginald P. Clancy ahead of me, I found the front portal unlocked and barged in without knocking. A moment later, I was looking at a corpse. Chapter 2. Postpone Death For a man who had just established in Hollywood that week, Mahatma Guru had made plenty of progress, at least from the standpoint of interior decoration. My first impression was that I'd entered a soundstage by mistake and stumbled onto a set dress for a Boris Karloff production. The vestibule had been enlarged to make a waiting room, and its walls were draped in black cloth of a spongy texture, like graveyard moss. Signs of the Zodiac were painted on the cloth and glowed against the black background. A weird effect guaranteed to give you the horrors. A man with claustrophobia would have blown his wig the minute he walked in. If he stayed very long, you'd have to tote him away in a straitjacket. I've got steady nerves myself, but that black-draped outer chamber put goose pimples on me. Maybe it was the dead still air, the lack of ventilation, or on the other hand, maybe my intuition was functioning overtime. Whatever it was, I had an abrupt hunch that trouble loomed in the offing. The hunch became a positive conviction when I stepped into Mahatma Guru's parlor. Here, the ceiling had been swathed in folds of purple velvet that sagged down like the underside of a tired barrage balloon. Large tinfoil stars were attached to the massive wrinkles, while the room's walls and windows were masked by an array of oriental silk screens, opulently direct decorated with embroidered dragons and werewolves. In one corner, there was an open sarcophagus of early Egyptian vintage, occupied by a mummified tenant who had obviously become defunct around the time King Tut cashed in his royal chips. It wasn't the mummy that flabbergasted me, however. In the middle of the room, there was a circular table of clear plastic, the kind that bends light rays. A full zodiac had been etched into the tabletop and concealed somewhere under the circular rim. A fluorescent tube glowed brightly. Its light followed the etched design in lucite and then sprayed upward, dramatically revealing a human face. At least I hoped it was human. For a brief instant, I wasn't any too sure. The head was engulfed in a turban of black satin, from which a red jewel glittered bloodily. Below this, there were two dark eyes and hollow sockets, a nose like an eagle's beak, a saffron salad complexion, and a beard. I've lamped a lot of facial foliage in my time, but this set of spinach took the prize. It was black and curly and parted in the middle, sweeping to east and west like a bifurcated broom. What the dickens? I said when I got my breath back. A growth like that could send Gillette stock down six points. The whiskers stirred in what might have been a faint smile. I wasn't positive. The one thing I could be certain of was that the hairy face was attached to a body. As my eyes grew accustomed to the subdued light, I saw that the man was seated on a chair resembling a high-backed throne, upholstered in the kind of cloth they use for lining coffins. He wore a single robe-like garment of purple. To match the ceiling, his hands were folded on top of the lucite table. They were long-fingered hands, and at first thought they were dirty. Then I realized the black smudges weren't dirt. They were tufts of hair. Each finger had as much as the average man uses for a mustache. To my disgust, I said something low but emphatic. Ah! Reginald Percy Clancy protested. Yeah, and I'll talk to the Mahatma like that, Mr. Ransom. It ain't respectful. So, this is the Mahatma, hey? I pulled out the rod I had glommed from the New York torpedo and brandished it menacingly. Okay, fortune teller, let's talk business. The whiskers moved again and a voice came out of them, deep, resonant, profoundly soothing, almost hypnotic. Business, ah yes, that is why I had you brought to me. Now just a minute. You didn't have me brought to you, I came under my own steam. To prove it, let me call your attention to this heater I'm holding. It formerly belonged to your stooge here, Reginald. I took it away from him. If I had wanted to, I could have made him eat it. Unless you offer a plausible explanation of this whole screwy capper, I may make you eat it. When the whiskers stirred this time, it was a definite smile. Benign, gentle, and somehow patronizing. White, even teeth glistened in startling contrast to the black foliage, while the tip of a red tongue moistened equally red lips. Spoken bravely. And you are indeed entitled to a full explanation. This screwy caper, as you term it, was based upon my desire to hire you. I blinked at him. I don't get it. 
I shall try to make it plain. This morning I discovered my life was in danger. There was murder in my horoscope. I'll cut that out. Save your horoscope hogwash for the suckers. I'm not having any. All the same, as Tom made the short hairs prickle at the nape of my neck, he moved his hands on the lucite tabletop. Please do not interrupt. As I say, I foresaw my own murder. But the stars merely incline. They do not compel. Warn in advance, there was a slim chance I might avert this danger. If I could hire someone of dauntless courage to protect me. Flattery will get you nowhere. I do not seek to flatter you. I had heard of your reputation for toughness, and frankly, I doubted it. So I decided to test you. I sent Clancy with orders to bring you here at gun's point. If he had succeeded, it would have indicated you were not as brave as you were supposed to be. In that case, I planned to pay you for your inconvenience and dismiss you. But if you disarm Clancy, I would know you were the kind of man I needed. Wacky as this sounded, it still added up to make sense. When I analyzed it, I could begin to understand why Reginald Clancy had turned so meek after I bested him. I had measured up to qualifications, so naturally he had been only too eager to steer me to his boss. What Mahatma Guru wanted, apparently, was a detective who went around kicking people in the stomach. That part was okay, but what I didn't swallow was the fortune-telling routine, the horoscope warning of a murder. I said so, very bluntly. You'll have to do better than that stars-foretell-death stuff, chum. If you're figuring out hiring me, be more specific. Who is it who wants to kill you and for what reason? The planets do not name names. When I sent Clancy out for you, I did not know who desired to murder me. I only knew that I was in great peril from an unrevealed source. Now wait, are you trying to say you want me to begin fine-combing Hollywood on a blind hunt for some character who may be gunning for you? Do you expect me to go through the directory starting with the A's and working down the alphabet? That's ridiculous. He nodded his black turban. I agree. Such a search would be both foolish and fruitless. I would not even suggest it. Moreover, it would be unnecessary because, you see, within the past hour I've learned my enemy's identity. Yeah? Who? She is a very lovely woman, and her name is Lola Dulac. She is my wife. I gazed at him flabbergasted. Lula Dulac was one of Peritone Studios' brightest stars, a dainty and diminutive brunette who had skyrocketed to the top of the Hollywood heap within a period of three brief years. Starting out with bit parts and B-picks, she had swiftly graduated to big-budget epics and leading roles. Now she was Peritone's biggest box office attraction. Her annual income tax would have kept me in Cadillacs for the next decade. Calling her a potential murderess seemed as absurd as dunking your donuts in prussic acid. And besides, the Dulac Dow couldn't possibly be Mahatma Guru's wife. She was already married to Pete Hollister, a character hombo on the Peritone payroll. They'd got hitched in Nevada less than six months ago, and they were reputed to be the happiest couple on the coast. I took a step toward the illuminated lucite table and favored the Mahatma with one of my best sneers, the kind I reserve for people I dislike. You're commencing to irritate me, pal. I happen to know Lola Dulac and her hubby. I knew them long before they got married. I've been to parties with Lola when she was single, and I've doubled for Pete Hollister in danger routines when I was a stuntman. They're both nice kids, Lola especially. Anybody that says she's the killer type is either insane or a liar. Furthermore, wait. Before you permit your misguided chivalry to make an idiot of you, let me tell you that Lola visited me while Clancy was out looking for you. In fact, she left this house only a few minutes before you, and Clancy came in. Having murdered me, she went away quickly. 
I did a double take. Having murdered you? With a small automatic. Either a twenty-two or a twenty-five, I think. Not that the caliber matters. At such close range, any gun would have been quite effective. Clancy, the room lights, please. Clancy sidled the wall, flipped a switch. Bulbs glowed in an old-fashioned chandelier overhead at the center of the droopy purple ceiling drapes. Then Mahatma Guru dramatically opened his robe, pushed the circular table away, stood up and intoned, I forced myself to live long enough to tell you what happened. Behold my death wounds. He sounded almost smug as he said it. I took a petrified gander at the crimson rawness near his heart. Then he slowly toppled and I leaped forward to catch him. I didn't quite make it. He folded over, sank back in his throne, and buried his whiskery map on the lucite tabletop, spang in the middle of the glowing zodiac. Clancy shoved me aside, rushed for his boss, and then pulled back, shuddering. Jumping jitters! The Mahama kicked the bucket! Chapter 3. Lapse of Memory Frantically, I hunted for a phone, but there wasn't one. If I hand could do any dialing, Reginald Percival Clancy informed me I would have to go elsewhere. The Mahatma ain't had time to get one put in. Besides, if you're thinking about calling a doctor, it won't do no good. What the poor guy needs now is an undertaker. What he needs first is a flock of cops, I snarled. Hold the fort. Then went racing out to my coop, swung it in a U-turn, and headed for Melrose Avenue. Melrose is a business thoroughfare, and I was looking for a drugstore or beanery with a public phone booth. I found a phone. Two minutes and one nickel later, I was talking to police headquarters, and another minute got me my old friend Ole Brunvig of the Homicide Squad. Nick Ransom talking, I said, and gave him Mahatma's address on Van Ness. Better get out here fast. Bring the help with you. I've just stumbled into a murder. Senior grade. Brumby sounded as though he might be having trouble with his ulcers. Ugh, just my luck, Sherlock. Have you got anything better to do than hunt up homicides and dump in my lap? Then warily, in a tone of embittered resignation, Who's dead? A stargazer, naming a hot Maguru, died of slugs in the chest. Seems he cast his own horse to open and discovered murder in it, so he tried to hire me for protection. Unfortunately, I didn't reach him in time to do any good. He'd already been shot when I arrived. Told me he was killed by... Now wait. What kind of curves are you pitching at me? What's this about horoscopes and a dead man naming his murderer? Listen, if you're drunk, I'm going to have your license drawn. Friendship or no friendship, I mean that. I told him to go climb a string. So it happens I'm sober. This guru guy had been shot a while before I arrived. His injury was fatal but lingering. He managed to stay alive until I showed up so he could give me information. Then he joined his ancestors. Oh yeah, why didn't he phone some law? Why didn't he phone a doctor? Why didn't he... His joint isn't wired for sound. I butted in, which is why I'm talking to you from a pay station. I'll grab your car and get out here. I hung up before he could ask me any more childish questions, barged back to my bucket and started back for the Mahatma's place. En route, it suddenly dawned on me that I did not tell Ole the essential ingredient of the story, the part about Guru naming Lola Dulak as the killer who'd shot him. That was the crux of the whole scenario. A dying man's testimony regarding his murder is admissible as evidence in court, provided the victim knows he's dying and there are witnesses to his statement. Guru, by saying Lola Dulak was the person who shot him, had handed her a one-way ticket to the gas chamber. If I'd remembered to mention to Brunvig, he would have sent out a bevy of bulls to nab her, Prano. As it was, she might even now be taking a powder for parts unknown. If she succeeded in evading arrest, it would probably be my fault. I wonder if that, subconsciously, was the way I wanted it. Your mind pulls funny tricks on you sometimes, and I'd always had a warm spot in my heart for Lola. It was difficult for me to see her in a murder row. She wasn't the killer type. Maybe that was why I failed to put the finger on her. Maybe without realizing that I wanted her to beat the rap. On the other hand, perhaps Ole Brunvig's crabbiness had caused me to skip mentioning Lola in connection with the kill. Maybe, a way down deep, I'd hoped to make the case tougher for him. 
When I considered this, I knew I'd dumped myself in a jackpot. Any way he looked at it, I, I had withheld important information. And just as soon as he found out, he would blow up like the Vesuvius. I had a dismal mental picture of myself, short of my license, and forced to go back to studio stunting. God forbid, I whispered piously as I parked. Then I drifted into Mahatma Guru's implausible parlor, wondering if I might save face by leaving Reginald P. Clancy here to admit the cops, while I sallied forth personally to pinch Lola. If I handed her to Brunvig on a silver platter, maybe he would overlook the boner I'd pulled. I found Clancy walking around, biting his fingernails. Ah, gumshoe, what kept you so long? I don't like this idea of having to stick around with a stiff. Gives me the willies. I'm not too fond of it myself, I said, and stole an unwilling glance at the Mahatma's body. He was still slumped in the throne-like chair and doubled over with his whiskers crinkled under his face on a lucite table. His black turban was askew and his short, hairy hands groped stiffly at nothingness as he swept the long sleep. I moved toward him thoughtfully. Clancy widened his peepers at me. Hey, Flaffa, what are you going to do? A favor for the morgue orderlies. If we let this fellow stay in that position much longer, rigor mortis will harden him like a pretzel and I'll have to press him between the pages of a dictionary to straighten him out for the stretcher. I beckoned. Here, come help me put him on the floor before his joints get stubborn. Oh no, not me, Hawkshaw. Somebody else maybe, but not me. What's the matter, scared? Dead guys is out of my line. Besides, you ain't supposed to touch no corpse until the cops get in their licks first. I seen that somewhere in a book. Tentatively, I flexed the murdered Mahatma's arm and it resisted me. I guess you're right, Reggie. It's too late anyhow. It wasn't too late for me to rectify a blunder, though, and I made for the door. When Lieutenant Brunvig gets here with his homicide henchmen, sing him the story and then tell him I've gone witch hunting. Huh? It's self-defense. I don't want my license yanked for a mistake I made, so I'm doing something about it. Mistake? What mistake? I forgot to tell Brunvig about Lola Dulac. You mean the dame who croaked the Mahatma? You forgot to put the heat on her? A scowl darkened Reginald's face. Say, listen here, you wouldn't be fronting for her, would you? I wouldn't like that. It wouldn't be fair to the Mahatma. Your loyalty to him is very commendable indeed, considering you've just been working for him less than a week. Apparently you're a citizen who likes to see justice prevail. Yeah, is that bad? Not at all, pal. I'm the same way myself. By the same token, if you think I'd front for a murderer, you're as haywire as eleven to the dozen. Remember, I'm a private dick, which makes me a sworn arm of the law in a left-handed way. When they issued my tin, they made me take an oath to uphold the statute of California, including the ones applying to homicide. He pushed out a sullen lower lip. Well, you hold the Mahatma, you was a friend of the Dulac, Jane, and... Ah, step aside before I lose patience and kick out your front teeth. I said I was going out witch hunting, didn't I? Oh, now I get it. You're going to find the broad, eh? That I am. I said and took off for the Hollister home. But when I got there and told Lola's husband what had happened and what I wanted her for, Pete Hollister swung a roundhouse haymaker with Zane full at my dewlaps. Had it landed, it would have knocked me into the middle of the next November. It didn't land, which was a break from my insurance policy. An inch was all it missed me. But an inch is all you need when you've got f- fast reflexes. I stepped inside the punch and said softly, I hate to hurt you, Pete. Don't make me. He was big and tough and full of fire. His tallness topped my six feet plus with little to spare, and he outweighed my 190 by a good 10 pounds, maybe more. He didn't have much science, though, and besides, he telegraphed that blow before he threw it at me, so I let it zip around my neck. Then I rammed him backward and pinioned him firmly against his patio wall. It was a modest patio with a modest swimming pool behind an equally modest stucco wigwam. To get there, you rolled up through Laurel Canyon almost to San Fernando Valley, then twisted to the left on a corkscrew cutoff that led into a tiny box in Arroyo. Here, Lola Dulac and the Hollister Ham had built their nest after that Nevada wedding ceremony six months ago, and here I'd come to intrude upon their private paradise, in exchange for which I'd almost got my block knocked off. 
The drive from the Mahatma's stash on Van Ness had taken less than 30 minutes, whereupon I jingled the doorbell and been welcomed by Peter Hollister in person. He was young and blonde and vigorously muscular, with a theatrical voice and matinee idol mannerisms that would always keep him from being as big a star as his handsomeness would otherwise warrant. In the pictures, he always played second fiddle to his wife, who was a genuinely talented actress. Not that Pete seemed to mind the state of affairs. In the years I had known him, he had grown accustomed to a minor spot on the screen. If he ever had any ambition, he had long since subordinated it to the meteoric climb of Lowe's spectacular career. In brief, he was an incurable ham. He knew it, he couldn't do anything about it, and so what? And that's the end of part one. Thanks for listening today, and just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of Mahatma of Mayhem by Robert Leslie Bellum.